0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Distributed Morphs. Today's guest is Dr. Claire Bourne, a professor at Yale University. Uh, Dr. Bourne is a historical linguist whose research focuses on Indigenous languages of Australia, uh, primarily on, uh, uh, again, historical change, language change, um, and uh, linguistic documentation. Uh, I think this episode is going to be very illuminating, um, both in terms of uh, our discussion of how morphology can inform language change um, and and also looking at uh, a set of languages uh, that we haven't had a chance to discuss before. Um, So I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Hey Claire, uh thanks for joining us today. Um I hope things are going well with you in this rather unusual time.
1: Um yeah, hi Jeff. It's great to to be here. It's um definitely the oddest semester. I'm also very happy that I can say it's the oddest semester and not the worst semester. I feel you know, very lucky that um uh that things are on the whole relatively calm. Um but um uh yeah, and the sun is shining in New Haven after uh, quite a bit of, uh, fairly bleak spring. So, um, so it's nice to be getting towards spring and summer now.
0: Oh, that's good. We're, we're under uh, immense cloud cover right now. And it's, it's incredibly bleak today, but it was sunny earlier today. So I feel like we just flipped. Um, but anyway, let's, let's talk some morphology. Um, so I had a, a request from a listener and, um, to talk about language change. And that's what you work on. So exactly what I do. (laughs) One of the things I wanted, let's, let's go ahead and start big picture. So, you know, just talking about the big picture, where does the study of language change and the study of morphology sort of fit together?
1: that's a That's a great question and a great place to start because I think there's both a very simple answer and a very complicated answer um So the simple answer is that morphology is everywhere um especially everywhere in language change, and every aspect of language change that we look at we need to think about morphology uh either immediately or not too far down the line. Um, So if you think about how people speak and how language changes or how people sign, it works for sign languages as well, um, and how, how language changes over time, we have... Uh, higher order structure. We have paragraphs, sentences, and so on. We have words. These words have pieces. That's the morphology. Um, but when we're talking and when we're signing, we don't sign in, in or speak in individual morphemes or individual phonemes. Um, we you know, we use the larger the larger structure. Um, but we can of course make reference to these uh, to these smaller pieces and um, the uh, the processes of language change operate at all these levels simultaneously. So we don't have a separate module of sound change where we think, oh, okay, I'm going to change that phoneme now. Or um, when I said cat recently, I didn't really release the T enough, so I'm going to release it a bit more next time, Uh, that sort of thing. That's not how language change works either at the individual or or at the societal level. Um, When we're talking about individual words, um, we, of course, Uh, have intuitive knowledge of the paradigms that words belong to and the the structures that words can and cannot participate in, but we don't use those individually when we think, okay, I'm going to I don't want to have three genders, I only want to have two genders, so I'm going to collapse this masculine gender into this neuter gender and uh, we're going to have uh, uh, yeah two two sets of oppositions instead of uh, instead of three. Right, that's just not how language change works. But all of those things affect morphology, um, and so when we're looking at how languages change, we really have to come to grips with the word structure and how that relates to the sound change, to the syntactic change, to semantic change. Um, So, of course, meaning is all very closely bound up in this as well. Um, And then that all comes together. And then there's the the bits of morphological change, which are not sound change and not semantic change and not syntactic change, and that's the morphology itself.
0: Great. So so was that the... uh... The simple answer or the complex answer,
1: right, yeah, so that was I guess that that was kind of both um right, because the simple answer is morphology is everywhere, and language change has to deal with it, and then the the complex answer is uh like here here's why there are all these pieces that uh that that go together in uh in morphological change, um maybe it would help if we had um if i gave you an example of um uh, of how these sorts of things all uh, all fit together because we can talk about it in the abstract but it might be easier to uh to think about a concrete set of uh set of changes that would be fantastic okay so um so let's let, let's see let's um what's a good example of this um so let's think about um let's think about english verbs um as a uh, as a way to, to tease apart how these, how these things all, uh, all come together. Um, and, uh, I have some other examples from other languages as well in a sec, but English verbs is probably a good place to, uh, to start. So old English had, um, verbal paradigms. So it had, uh, tense marking, it had, uh, agreement marking, uh, it had classes of what are called weak verbs and strong verbs, uh, which is basically regular verbs and irregular verbs. Um, and, um, so, so your average speaker of old English or um, uh, your baby scientist acquiring old English um, learnt that these um uh that as part of speaking English, uh Old English of the year 800 or something like that, you have uh these different classes of verbs and they uh they inflect in uh in different ways. Um along came a bunch of sound changes in uh the history of English, and that changed some of the structures and made some of the verb structures Um, more regular and made some of them irregular. So for instance, we had a, um, so a verb like, uh, like modern English sleep uh, was probably something like slept in old English. Um, And as, uh, and uh, so it had a past tense, um, that got reduced over time through sound change um, and so it had a heavy syllable uh at the uh, at the end of the word so it became a monosyllable it went from uh several, from two syllables to uh, i guess three syllables for slap at um and then to uh to one syllable uh, one syllable um and so that um meant that we had a long vowel sleep in the um uh, in the, the present tense, but the past tense was, uh, uh, what we now write S-L-E-P-T, right? So slept. Um, so that long vowel shortened. And so we don't say slept. We say, we say slept now. Um, so that's an example of how sound change influences morphology. There wasn't a, um, there wasn't a morphological change that changed the, the forms of the, uh, of the past tense marker in that word, but there was a sound change that shortened all long vowels in long syllables and, um, uh, and, and so created an alternation in the, uh, in the morphology. Um, we have other examples as well. So at the same time, uh, we have these uh, regular verbs like walk and walked and so on. We also have irregular verbs like um, ring, rang, and rung, or bring and brought, and uh, and so on. And so over time, uh, those verbs also got regularized. So one of the things that uh, that always trips me up in uh, in America is the past tense of dive. Um, so you know, sometimes we're way later than that old English. Now, sometime I think around 17 or So the past tense of dive became dove in American English. And so it was irregularized. But um, <laughs> in other colonies like in Australia, uh, it remained as dived. Um, and so we, we see some of these patterns happening as well. So that's purely a morphological change. But and, it, you know, it doesn't have a meaning change or anything like uh, like that. But um so these just give you a couple of um small examples about how we can't just think of morphology separate from uh, from phonology, from sound change. Um I didn't give you a meaning example, but you know, there are other meaning examples as um as well about how forms split and um and so on. Great. Um
0: so one of the things you've talked about is that morphology can be a, a shaper of change. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on this concept?
1: Um, yeah, sure so um, so far when we've been talking about uh, morphology and um, and morphological change, so I talked about the how sound change can end up influencing morphology and um, we have examples of semantic change influencing morphology as well um, uh, I can give examples in a sec, but we haven't really talked about. So, what happens if you take out the sound change, take out the syntactic change, take out um the semantic change, and so on what 's left um and uh, so, this is where we get into theoretical questions about what morphology is and is it separate in the uh in the grammar and so on um but one um somewhat controversial area of language change is, do we have paradigms in um uh, as kind of real entities in language that constrain change or that direct uh, that direct change, um and so this is what this uh, th- this question is about um, how um morphology might be a shaper of change. Um so you know humans are very good at pattern recognition. we like to have patterns in our language. um we uh, regularize irregular patterns and we create new local uh local irregular patterns over uh over time as well. Um and so there's a there's a school of thought that um argues that um morphological paradigms uh, of themselves can act as attracting forces for uh for change. Um so one of the people who's argued this um quite extensively is Martin Maiden um from the University of Oxford. Um and so he argues that um, there are these kind of features of. Um, morphological features, morphological principles of organization, uh, which are self-perpetuating in that they, other changes, kind of like conspiracies in optimality theory, um, these types of changes end up reinforcing these sorts of, uh, these paradigms and become a kind of organizing principle for the, uh, for the languages themselves. Um, so the examples that um, that Maiden talks about are things like vowel uh, changes in romance conjugation classes, um, so in verb conjugation. So we have an A conjugation Conjugation. We have an i conjugation, uh, or conjugations with a, conjugations with i, conjugations with e, etc. Um, and these shapes tend to be, tend to seem to be very stable, if I can say that. Um, they seem to be <laughs> very stable across um, a couple of thousand years of um, uh, of Romance morphology, even when other things are uh, are changing. Um, so that would be the idea that morphology is this it is not just um, a Uh, is not just syntax or not just phonology, it's something else um, itself. Um, And there are other people who've uh, who've argued similar sorts of things for synchronic language, so not so much as a shaper of change but as an organising principle in people's heads. So Mark Aronoff, for instance, has talked about the morpheme as uh, as an organising principle in... um, uh in language which um is a kind of intermediate layer between the semantics and the phonology which is um separate from the syntax and separate from the phonology but is is basically the, the morphology of the uh of the language. Um other people argue that so uh yeah other people argue that this is not a not a real phenomenon it's a kind of epiphenomenon it's something that um, comes about because language is very complicated. People like patterns, even if the patterns don't have any kind of real organizational principle, they might still exist um, as uh, kind of. Uh, they're, they're not autonomous patterns. Others would uh, would argue um, that instead we have other principles, say principles of foot structure or principles of um, other types of phonological organization, which um, or uh meanings that get grouped together and so on. And those are the principles that govern what um uh what changes when language changes and uh and how it changes. And so it may be that we see morphology, we we see things that linguists recognize as patterns and want to ascribe uh causation to them, but in fact it's it's something else that's uh that's going on. Um this is very much a debated topic in morphology there's a um a lot of back and forth about the extent to which these are um these are real ideas in uh in morphological theory and so w- that would be a great area to work in
0: yeah this is a a concept that's come up uh several times in um previous discussions on this on this very podcast of the sort of relationship of paradigms and so forth so it's very it's very you know interesting to see that it it's also uh you know, I mean, not only is it an important concept in synchronic grammars, but it's also an important concept in diachronic grammars, and the same controversies are emerging. Absolutely. Um, whether or not whether or not these are, are 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 really part of the sort of mental organization. Um
1: Right. Yeah, I was just going on for, for, for that for a sec. I, it reminds me of a, a time I was in grad school, and I was asked about what sort of morphology I did, and it was. Okay, <laughs> are you a morphologist who works on phonology? So, like, do you work on the sound patterns, or are you a morphologist who's really a syntactician? And um, it was a um, like as though one could choose between the uh, the two. And this was, uh, I guess, right around the time that uh, that DM, the distributed morphology, was um, uh, was really kind of taking off. And and so it was still pretty new at uh, at that point, and so we were having big arguments about what was in the lexicon, and uh, and so on, and uh, yeah, I was expected to take sides, um, and it's like both, maybe um, <laughs> right, above the above,
0: yeah. When I when I teach morphology, I, I'm always like, you to do morphology, you you basically have to do everything. You have to do semantics. You have to do uh, phonology, and you have to do syntax. You can't you can't ignore any piece.
1: Right. Um, Yeah. No, that, that was, um, uh, certainly very true in, uh, in my department, Stephen Anderson, um, is a long time member of the the department and as a morphologist who didn't believe in morphemes, uh, as, uh, as he would say, (laughs) um, that, um, uh, yeah, morphology is real, even if morphemes aren't real. And then you have to do the phonology and you have to do the syntax. Um, and it all, it all kind of like morphology is the glue that puts it all together. Yeah. Um, so, I want to also talk about some of your work on the language
0: Bardi. Um, so this is really fascinating work and I just kind of want to give you some open space to tell us uh, more about it. Um, I, I I always uh, just want to hear about, and uh, I, I know you do just uh, a lot of different work on this language and I just like to give um, our guests um, uh, space to talk about um, their work on uh, the field languages that they work on and other types of, uh work like that so oh. you know connect it to this uh to this topic or not just run with it
1: (laughs) absolutely happy to um unfortunately i don't have a wireless microphone so i'm tethered to my uh (laughs) uh, metaphorically run with
0: metaphorically run with it yes (laughs)
1: that's that's what we do when we're um we're not doing morphology we're doing metaphor um and uh yeah sure so um let me tell you a bit about um just about the bardi language and um bardi speakers and um and then I'll talk a little bit about Bharati morphology, and um, uh, I guess we've had a bit of a verb uh, morphology uh, shtick today, so I'll probably keep on talking about the verbs a little bit. Um, and then I can talk a bit about how um, Bharati morphology has changed um, in reconstructed time, so over the last couple of thousand years, and also very quickly in the last 20 or 30 years or so. That would be um, Fantastic. But- Okay, cool. So, so we have a plan. Um, so, <laughs> uh, it's always good to have a plan. Um, Bardi. So Bardi is a um, an Australian language. It's um, an an indigenous language of northwest Australia. Um, Bardi people have traditional country um, north of Broome in um, the far northwest of Australia. So, if you have a mental picture of Australia, um, there's the uh, Western Australia, which is the big state that's uh, that's in the west, it has a coastline that runs roughly north south for a bit and then uh, it turns and r- runs roughly northeast for a bit. Bharati is basically spoken at the point where uh, you can't go north anymore you have to start turning uh, turning northeast so that'll give you a kind of radio map of um, uh, of where Bharati country is um, is within Australia. Um, Bardi people have, there are about 2000 Bardi people, um, who live in, uh, both in Bardi communities, uh, one on point, um, so it's called, uh, Lombardina, Jarenjin, um, and, um, surrounding towns and, um, uh, and communities as well. So Broome is the biggest, uh, town of the region. There's also Derby, um, and, um, uh, and also other regional centers like, um, like Darwin and, um, and Perth. Um, Barty, uh, is a, um, uh, so there are, uh, elders who still speak the language fluently, um, and there's a lot of community interest in the language. The language is taught in schools, um, but for the most part, Bharati people speak um, English or Creole um, as the day-to-day language of uh, of communication. Um, but there are uh, revitalization uh, efforts and uh, and so on. But the number of fluent speakers of the uh, the language at this point is very small, probably around three or four um, speakers. I, I, I feel uncomfortable putting an exact number on it, but it's uh, it, it's of that. Uh, of, of that sure. order. so one
0: would describe it as critically endangered
1: uh right um i and um, and has been so for for, for quite some uh, quite yeah, some time yeah 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 um, one one thing i'm uh I, cautiously pleased to be able to say is that COVID-19 seems to have been kept out of the Kimberley region. Um, The communities, uh, Aboriginal communities in the area work together very quickly um, to close roads, close, um, restrict travel, um, uh, particularly to outsiders and um, to implement culturally appropriate social distancing. And so it seems like they have been able to to, to keep the communities um, safe, uh, at least at this time. And uh, now Australia is uh, is cautious reopening and um uh kimberley's are still reasonably there there's a small amount of reopening but um uh but you know it's been been good to see that both the the swiftness of the uh the local officials within the Bardi community Lombardina community and um uh and Beagle Bay working together even when the the state and regional governments were maybe a bit slower than uh than you know was certainly there were a couple of tense uh tense weeks where you know things were blowing up in the US things hadn't quite reached Australia they were in a critical point where uh acting acting now would be you know absolutely crucial and um uh yeah, so uh so yeah I just wanted to to make, make that aside as um uh as well, well um, that,
0: that's excellent news and uh, can I just i mean add i think i mean a lot of people maybe don't recognize just how uh dangerous covid nineteen is to um the the linguistic diversity of uh the world uh because of the fact that there are so many languages that are spoken by. Uh, people that are, um, at, at such high risk and, and we're just, you know, the, the fact that, you know, th- that the community was able to respond like that. And I, you know, I, I worry about a lot of the languages of the U S, um, for this very reason. Um, right
1: a- absolutely and some of the things we're hearing from uh the navajo nation for instance um sure. are, um uh yeah you know what uh, you know we know for that, um you know, covid-19 is a uh is an awful disease where you have running water and where you have access to icus and so on but um uh yeah the articles for uh, you know describing uh the uh, issues on the navajo reservation for instance have been uh yeah absolutely terrible
0: or the attempts by it, uh, out of South Dakota just to to maintain their you know their standards of uh, social distancing and you know and the the local governments' attempts to undo those you know it's there's just there's a lot happening that are uh, uh, you know particularly for indigenous rights and so forth that is just it you know and from just the perspective of you know obviously language is our topic but you know there's there's so much more going on
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, uh, seeing the um, community leadership around linguistic, um, well, both linguistic and social um, issues at this time, for instance, the translation initiatives um, for making sure that um, community members have access to accurate medical information in the languages they they know best has been, um, yeah, has been been great to see as well. So for instance, for Cactical in um, Ventura County in California um, and um, uh, languages, which, um, traditionally, uh, maybe fly under the radar for the official government translation initiatives and, uh, and things like that too. Yeah.
0: Anyway. Um,
1: right. Yeah. Sorry. I diverted I uh, us from, uh, from no, no, no. It's an like- important
0: topic, an important topic. And I, I do think that one that, uh, people m- may not necessarily have on the, the forefront of their mind. I mean, there's so much going on with COVID-19 that, uh uh but uh it it i'm i'm glad to hear that uh at least you know knock on wood that a, as of right now the the bardy community is uh likely um going to to be uh unaffected
1: right uh, yeah right. things things are okay for for now um, let, let me say one more general thing about uh, before moving back into Barty specifically. Um, so I think uh, I, I've been thinking about this a lot over, well, for quite some time now, um, when thinking about the relationship between work on languages, work with endangered language communities and um, general issues of um uh, of outreach and social justice and uh, and things like that as well, and um, I know this is this is something that comes up a lot with um with graduate students and with uh, with undergraduates who are thinking about linguistics and thinking about the sorts of things they want to work on um, and are seeing something of a disconnection between um, work on languages where okay, so now we 're going to think about the three different types of applicative that this language <laughs> has um, and thinking about very abstract very theoretical um uh, material that has um ultimately not that much to do with the speech signal itself um or with the, the language signal I should say itself um on the one hand and then studying these things in uh in communities where um where there's you know, where there's a lot going on and um i, I just want to say it's possible to do both of these uh these things it's not necessarily that the two topics don't necessarily align Uh, exactly all the time. Um, But there are ways to make these sorts of um, uh, topics both relevant for linguistic outreach and where the results of linguistic knowledge are um, useful for community members um, themselves. And also um, the way the linguistics can be less of a, say, a dichotomy between communities and uh, academia as well and academia will only um uh only benefit from uh from greater ties and greater attention to the um to the uh more social and social justice aspects of these things as uh as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, what one thing Scylla did with their their most recent uh, uh abstract requirement of their meeting was they required um all submissions to include a uh community impact statement which I think was a was a great move on their part um there was some pushback from it, but I mean, even, you know, they get plenty of just theoretic uh, submissions, you know, you know, these are the applicatives. These are the, uh, the, 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 you know, the uses of instrumental case and in this language, but uh, I, it, you know, I, I, I reviewed for them and it was really interesting to see you know, the thought that people put into, Oh wait, there is actually a community use of the, the, you know, the, the, the three applicatives of studying these applicatives and, Oh wait, and now I can do this. I can actually help with this project. And, you know, it, it doesn't take it, you know? Yeah. I, I really do think you can do both. Um, and if you are involved in these types of work, if you are involved in this work, you really ought to be doing both. Um,
1: Right, and thinking about language change too. I mean, the so the what we were talking about what ten fifteen minutes ago with um, language change and um, uh, invisible hand factors and morphology as a shaper of change and so on is maybe at first sight very distant from the uh, the other parts of, uh, of our conversation and about language um, language reclamation and revitalization and so on. But um, I think there's a lot of uh, historical knowledge that or not Knowledge of historical linguistics, which becomes very relevant for thinking about uh, language reclamation programs or um, language and society questions more uh, more generally. Um, so, for instance, if we want to think about how um, uh, so we have what half the world's languages currently endangered. Um, uh, number of languages that um, uh, that are lo- losing fluent speakers is um, is very high. Um, we're going to need to know. For language reclamation programs, what sorts of uh, like how how similar two languages are from uh, uh, for each other, what are the social implications of saying, "Okay, this is similar to that um, and uh, potentially um, combining materials or not combining uh, not combining materials and being sensitive to um, social aspects of linguistic difference as well as um, as uh, being aware of language change types of uh, types of things. Um, there was a really I'm sorry I'm forgetting the authors of this uh, this article I can I can look it up and uh, post it uh, if um, uh, a little later on but um, there was an article recently about um, Quechua and um, Quechua language standardization and how the the goals of the program were to increase um, accessibility for Quechua materials but the program ended up having the reverse effect because by standardizing by imposing a standard that was no one's first language it was so artificial it basically alienated everyone who um, had a stake in the the, the reclamation and um, uh, language stabilization process so the the elders um, didn't want to be involved because they were uh the uh, standard materials had forms uh and morphology which was not um part of uh their varieties um the kids were really confused because the kids were used to hearing lots of var- uh, lots of variation lots of varieties from uh from different speakers and all of a sudden they were getting one um, uh, they say no you have to say it this way etc um the orthography didn't line up that well with the variation that was already there in the community um and so knowing both about the um uh the, the theoretical side of things and the uh ha- these practical implications and how they work is um you know is pretty important for um uh for for the sorts of work we do
0: yeah absolutely
1: um, so let me go back to Bardi. For, yes. Uh, um, now we've now talked a little about, bit of a digression, but yeah, no, an oh, important oh, one. And uh, uh, and so on. and so of course now I have to tell you about Bardi applicatives. I mentioned three Bardi applicatives. Um, so <laughs> let me let me tell you about um, about that. Well, actually, let me step back a little bit and tell you about Bardi morphology just um, in, in general. So Bardi is a. Um, uh, not exactly polysynthetic, but kind of next door to polysynthetic. So, um, it has, um, uh, the verbs tend to be very long. Um, that's a technical description, um, um <laughs> which are a lot of agreement. Um, they, um, uh, they have, um, uh, a number of different, um, different paradigms and they have a lot of things in the verb, which, um, are, um, uh a more discoursey or um more uh more uh not exactly just canonical agreement uh types of types of structures although they have that too. Uh, Bari also has complex predicates, um, so they, the the verbs are bi- bipartite. They have two. Um, uh, many verbs have two two forms. They have a pre-stem or a pre-verb, um, and then the light verb, which carries the morphology and gives more information about uh, aspect, um, uh, participant, uh, information structure, and um, uh, and things along uh, along those lines. Um, Bardi also has case morphology. Um, it has a relatively unusual system where there's only one case marker per cl- uh, sorry, one case marker per, uh, per DP, um, but it's on the end of the first word. Um, so uh, if I want to say crocodile, the word for crocodile is lingur, um, if it's crocodile in the ergative, so say the crocodile is crocodile is eating a fish. Uh, it would be lingur nim, so nim is the ergative marker. But if it's a really big crocodile, then big is bordigi, so it would be bordigi nim lingur, so the ergative marker then goes on the adjective. Um, say I have a pet crocodile and it's my um, uh, my pet, cro- my, um, uh, my big crocodile, um, I would say uh, ngai nim jan, um, so ngai is I, then nim, the ergative marker, um, uh, jan is the my so the the possessives themselves are kind of complicated um yeah so jan lingur, um so my uh my crocodile etc cetera, etc cetera. um so that that's a kind of non non verb uh, morphological uh example and um that is reconstructable right back to proto nul um so all the nyulul languages have one case marker per uh per phrase which um tends to go at the end of the first first word of the clause uh, sorry, first word of the phrase. Um, it also brings up really interesting questions about what a word is here. Um, so um, adjectives are single words, um, but uh, names uh, tend to be double, so, especially borrowed names from English. So titles like, um, uh, I don't know, um, Mr. Jones. Um, the ergative wouldn't go on Mr. It would go on Jones. So it would be Mr. Jones Nim, uh, not Mr. Nim Jones. Um, And there are some other nice tests there for for wordhood and word status as well. Um, In terms of verbs, um, so variety has both prefixes and suffixes. Uh, The prefixes are um, subject markers, tense markers. um, There's a transitivity marker. um, There's a reflexive reciprocal circumfix. So you get a prefix part and a suffix part that sometimes co-occur and sometimes don't. Um, And then the suffixes have... Let's see, Um, I'm going to forget something, but there's um, indirect object agreement, direct object agreement, possessive agreement, locational agreement. Um, The indirect objects can be benefactives or recipients. Um, There's the three applicatives I mentioned. Um, There's what else is there? There's aspect marking, um, some tense marking, um, and then there are a whole bunch of clitics which – uh, refer to phrasal items as well, which can either go on the verb or can go uh, can go more uh, more at the start of the uh, the phrase. Barity um, has actually changed a lot in the last forty or fifty years or so. Um so forty or fifty uh in, in the material from the early nineteen seventies and um and earlier but, but I should mention Bharati has a very long by Australian standards uh tradition of recording. Um some of the oldest language materials for um any Australian language are in uh are in Barty. Um and there's been fairly regular recordings since the the 1890s. Um, oh, also. Wow. So we have quite a lot. We have a, a history of what 130 years now of um, of recordings, which we can do use to study syntactic change and morphological changes uh, as well. Um, and one of the things we've um, seen in Bardi since, particularly since the 1930s, but um, but also to some extent since the 1970s, um, is that there's been a lot more morphology um, on the verb that's become obligatory. Um, so in the 1930s with the, the suffixes, um, you would either get an indirect object marker or a direct object marker um, or a possessive marker. You wouldn't get all three, um, or or even two of them, and um, in that way, Bari, Bari of the 1930s looked very similar to the other languages that it's related to in the region. Um, sometime around the 1970s, to the um, to contemporary speakers, all of those agreement uh, markers became obligatory. So now you have these very long verbs that have multiple agreement um, positions. Um, and so that's a um, like it's it's not the usual sort of change under um, language uh, language pressure. Like we we tend to think of uh, language becoming more simple under contact conditions, or if speakers are shifting away, then um, they're maybe not acquiring as many of the complex structures. Um, but here we found greater complexification of the uh, of the material. Yeah, that's um, uh, that's
0: an interesting set of changes, uh, given the, the, the sort of, you know, the number of speakers and so forth.
1: Right. It's, um, and I, I think it, um, it goes along with the, um, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know exactly why it happened, but it, um, I think it's pretty clear that in the history of Bardi, um, there have been relatively few partial speakers, um, as in people usually either speak Bardi um or they uh they understand it but they don't speak it uh much themselves um and so these um uh, the so the people who speak it tend to speak it very uh, very well and use it a lot and so there's um uh opportunity for the people who are acquiring bity to acquire a pretty broad range of um uh, of the the syntactic and morphological structures of the language um whereas in other cases where the uh, e- even though um, a very large number of body people weren't uh weren't able to to acquire it um in part because of the uh the ways in which boarding schools um, worked in the uh, in the region and um, uh, removal of children to boarding schools in um uh in areas around derby and um separation from grandparents and grandkids um in um uh, in particular so even when the family units were largely intact um the uh, and so th- this was um a- an area in part of the stolen generations but maybe slightly less affected than than some other areas of australia. Um, but the, um, but in terms of linguistic continuity, um, there was a great deal of dis- disruption, particularly in the 1960s. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, um, part of the things that have changed over time. Um, one of the things that, um, so, uh, actually coming back to the three applicatives, uh, the, uh <laughs> and maybe this is a good place to, 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 end. So this is one area, which I think has also changed relatively, uh, relatively fast, um, so, yeah, so Barty has three applicatives. Um, one of them is an engma, ng. Um, second one is engma that alternates with ng, Um And these are actually cognate with the instrumental case marker um, as well. Um, and then there's a third marker, ng, as well. So engma, a palatal nasal in uh, y. Um, and, um, they, they occur in two different positions in the, uh, in the, the suffixes. Um, the first applicative goes right next to the root, um, and it changes the transitivity of the verb. Um, so the difference between the verb, so the verb root to go is gidi, um, and the verb root to touch someone is gidi, um, so it's the, it's go plus the applicative. Um and um the go is intransitive, it takes intransitive tense markers, etc. Um, jeeting touch is um uh is transitive, it takes the transitive forms, the subjects are in ergative case, and so on. Um so that and there are a number of verbs that alternate like um like that. Um the second applicative is um so it's a very similar sort of form, it has etymologically the same uh the same marker, and um it adds a um an adjunct to the uh, to the clause. So, if I want to um, go along with someone, then um, uh, so the word to to walk is one of these complex predicates. Um, so, um, I'm walking along. Um, say, uh, Jeff and I are walking uh, walking somewhere. I could say Jeff no Sorry, going along with uh, with Jeff. Um and so that um adds a um uh it adds an adjunct, it doesn't change the transitivity of the, the verb. The the verb is still formally intransitive, um the subject doesn't take ergative case and so on, but you add an additional um additional participant to the uh to, to the clause. Um and then the third um third applicative works something like this the second applicative, but it has a different form and it seems to be used with only a couple of different verbs, um and um uh and it wasn't really clear what um uh what the precise conditions were that um differentiated it from the second applicative but it also occurs in a slightly different place in the uh in the verb structure as um uh, as well I should also probably say that these, um, applicatives, um, so they, they relate to the instrumental marker and using the instrumental marker as a, um, as an applicative is found in, I think, other Nulnulan languages, but these aren't very much attested in the early sources. So they also seem to have arisen, uh, within the last, uh, 40 or 50 years or, or so, um, which I, th- I think is really nice because we, we think of morphology as being quite stable. Um, and um, where some of the arguments around morphological change and syntactic change and so on are that these, um, these items of language don't change very fast. And so they're good examples of measuring um, remote Genetic relations and so on, but uh, but there are cases, um, and actually quite a number of cases where these morphology um, uh, where this morphology changes pretty quickly, um, and is definitely not uh, not good for um, for showing cognacy or something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean that's one of the things that you know. I I, I mean, obviously, you could probably speak more to this where when people are trying to do uh, sort of measuring genetic distance or time distance and things like that th- through, you know, how, how much change has occurred, you know, like you could go back to glottal chronology and things like that, where they they say, ah, oh, this many sound changes have happened. So we can use this mathematical formula and say, ah, these languages are this distant from each other, but we know that language change doesn't happen at a, at a sort of steady, stable rate.
1: Right, Um, exactly. Yeah. I I have no problem using mathematical formula to describe language changes, but they can't be single numbers. They've got to be distributions of rates to, like, yeah, yeah, absolute to to start with.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave us with? Or um, you don't Um, have to, I don't want to put you on the spot, but... (laughs)
1: Uh, I, I think that's that's pretty much it for now. But I am happy to answer questions. Um, I don't know what's the best way to do this, maybe on Twitter. Um, or Okay,
0: I can I'll put your uh, uh, your Twitter handle on the in the description of the episode. So right. people can find you.
1: Yeah, that's probably the easiest way to to do it or um Jeff when you publicize the the podcast if you want to tag me on it I'm happy to uh happy to answer questions about things that uh that come up if um uh yeah if needed.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. It was uh, absolutely fascinating.
1: Oh, well, thank you for thank you for having me and I hope we'll get to see each other uh again in person before too long.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, whenever whenever that uh, whenever we're allowed to travel and have linguistics conferences again.
1: Right. Yeah. But this is a decent substitute in the meantime.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you again and uh, hope to see you again soon.
1: Okay. Thanks. Bye.
0: Bye. Thank you again to Dr. Bowen who spoke to us today. Uh, A few programming notes. Um, As I mentioned in the first episode, uh, this podcast was really created around the COVID-19 crisis Um, in part to support a course that I was teaching um, at Southern Illinois University. Um, Our semester has ended. I do intend to keep uh, this podcast going, um, but I'm going to take a little bit of a programming break to uh, sort of try to find some new guests, um, sort of reassess a few things, um, and uh, uh, just work on a few other projects for a little bit. Um, so uh, there will be a little bit of a, a Pause between this episode And our next few episodes uh, I do still enjoy hearing from you uh, If you have any ideas or requests For future episodes, please let me know um, And uh, I'm I'm just looking forward To getting back to this, but um, uh, I I will be taking A, a brief hiatus uh, to work On a few other projects before returning to this So um uh, just let me you know uh, where we are, where we're going uh, in the future. Uh, thank you again to all our guests who've uh, made this such a success uh, to get started. And uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with our future guests and uh, hearing from all my listeners. Thank you.